Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Welcome back to the StoryCraft Cafe. It's so good to have you with us for another year. Can you believe that it's already 2023? My mind is blown. I don't know where the last year has gone, but we hope that uh, that over the last year that you've gotten plugged into this great writing community at StoryCraft.Cafe, and hopefully you've listened to some interviews and gleaned some writerly wisdom from other people that have been down the path before us. I know I have, and I hope you have as well. Today, we have an amazing chat with you between me and Leanne Leeds. Leanne is a paranormal, cozy mystery writer, and she uses AI tools in her creative process. There's a lot of buzz going around the writer community about AI and what that's going to mean for writers and the future of the craft and you know lots and lots of questions but I thought I would go directly to someone who is actively using these tools and who believes that these tools make her process better and easier and we're gonna dig all into it today so no matter where you stand on AI um, this uh, hopefully will open your eyes to uh, to directions that this can take us that uh, that you've not thought of before. I know it did for me. It really opened me up. And uh, I, I know there's going to be lots and lots of conversations around this topic coming up for the next year. But as always, thank you for joining us. Now, grab yourself a, a cup of whatever you like to sip on and get in your comfy chair or whatever it is that you're occupied doing while listening to this podcast and enjoy this conversation. Well, thanks for joining me today in the StoryCraft Cafe. I am your story barista, Hank Garner, and thank you for joining us for our first kickoff show of 2023. Can you believe it's 2023 already? This is insane. Um, there's a lot of buzz uh, here lately as well as we're kicking off this year. It seems like the biggest buzz uh word buzz term in the writing community is ai and leanne leeds is a cozy mystery a cozy paranormal mystery writer um who has been very public in her use of ai tools and i just wanted to pick her brain today and and talk a little bit about her her journey and you know what it's like what it's like living out here on the cutting edge um, welcome to the show, Leanne. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you. Um, Leanne, we, we start each show with a fun question to kind of get things uh, rolling. And a question that I've had a lot of fun asking people lately is um, writers usually gather all sorts of writing advice uh, from people. Some of it jewels that you hang on to for the rest of your life. Some of it terrible advice what is one of your favorite pieces of writing advice either really good or really bad 
that you've gotten? Wow. Um, I, the one that sticks out the most in my head is from a, a very successful, and I'm not going to name them, but a very successful author um, that told me as soon as my, um, you know, pre-orders dipped in a series, it was time to retire and move on to another series. And I followed her advice to the letter um, with um, my second series. And I immediately announced I was ending it. The next two pre-orders were up. I was going to finish the series in that time. And the pre-orders doubled. It was, it was the Christmas dip, and I kind of didn't know about it. Oh, um, and it was my most successful series ever. So people were very upset with me that I had ended it. Um, I, I still get requests two or three years later. It was my biggest mistake. It was my biggest stumble. And it's my favorite piece because it made me realize that everybody's path to success is different. There's no standard. There's no canned answer for your career and, and no you know, predetermined way you have to make a decision to make it. And it really taught me to, you know, always test, always think, <laughs> um, you know, gauge your own pulse and the pulse of your readers before you listen to everybody out there who thinks they know exactly which way you have to go. I love that because, um, you know, the, the um, indie publishing revolution, which was really kicked off by the Kindle revolution, uh, a little more than 10 years ago has has created this this whole new industry that never existed before where um you know kindlepreneurs uh to borrow a a term that that some other folks have used um but you know in saying that there are a lot of people who have had success and and they have things that they have uh gauged their success on but that doesn't necessarily translate for everyone, as you discovered, that's, you know, a, a lot of ways it's as mature as this has become. It's still the wild west in a lot of ways, isn't it? It is. Um, and it changes more rapidly. Um, the, the industry just, just from month to month, from, from year to year, <laughs> um, just changes at an amazing pace. And at times it's very challenging to keep up with. So Leanne, did you um, always know that you would be a writer? I always wanted to be a writer. Um, I began reading novels at a very early age. I think I was seven or eight when my aunt, who was a teacher, would give me very adult novels. Um, my parents weren't readers, but because of her, I, um, I would just devour books late into the night. And then, of course, found science fiction like every other nerd and decided I was going to be a writer. So I went and went to college and signed up to be an English major like everybody else. And oh, yeah, um, somehow I kind of stumbled into IT um, uh -huh. and then was a uh, corporate customer service director for many, many years. And I wanted to write. Yeah, but just. It was never there. The time was never there. Needed to make money. Had a kid. Got married. Um, in 2016, I was laid off after having climbed a very long and arduous um, and profitable corporate ladder. Mm. Had a very large severance. 
um, and just kind of sat back and tried to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. I somehow stumbled on indie authorship and kind of shrugged and went, ah, what the heck? I'll give it a try. Always wanted to have some money to live on. Um, and I, it's, it was my calling. I love the lifestyle. I love being a writer. I love that I make up stories for a living. Right. Um, and had enough success and enough readers support me that it's, it's my career and I support my family through it now. I love that. I love um, that. Not where I thought I was going to end up. Yeah. And certainly a late in life career change that um, is the fulfillment of my childhood dream. That is so awesome. Um, what was that first story idea that, that became that first published book or, or did you write a story that you didn't publish? How, how was, how, how was that entry point? <laughs> so, um, I love, I love the laugh. I, I see it. I know there's a good story coming. <laughs> so I, I didn't start out writing paranormal cozy mysteries. When I came in in 2016, yeah. I kind of joined a lot of, yet again, everybody telling you where you need to be. It's oh, like yeah. romance and erotic romance and erotic shorts. And the, like, it was, that was where the money was. It was, you know, yeah. everybody had the stats and, and I wrote it and I think I wrote like six books and um, don't write what you don't love because <laughs> nobody else will love it. Yeah. Um, even if Ooh. you love something, your voice is not necessarily appropriate to it. Yeah. Um, and I had kind of many of those issues of, I didn't like the angst. I didn't like the bad boys that were popular then <laughs> everybody was complaining that my men were too nice and they were too polite and that i think i don't know you know i didn't what, know where what, to what go these was, are the kinds of people i would allow in my life why, why? <laughs> right <laughs> yeah. um I, I they were all based on my husband and my husband's a nice guy so I, we it would was, hope right it yeah. was very <laughs> difficult and because i really really wanted to do it and then i stumbled into somebody recommended um Annabelle Chase's Spellbound series to me okay. said if I had loved uh, paranormal television shows and mm -hmm. Buffy and stuff that I would love this. And that's how I got introduced to paranormal cozies, which seemed to fit my voice to a T. Um, and I wrote the first one, made all sorts of mistakes. It's red. It's the base of my universe that I write in. Yeah. Um, they're not great. They're definitely readable. I made a yeah. lot of mistakes in them, um, made them a little too kooky, tried too hard. <laughs> um, my second one, I really knocked it out of the park. And now this is, um, it, it's a career I kind of fell into. Yeah. But um, yes, the the foray into romance. Those, but you cannot find those books. If you find them, it's on somebody's Kindle. Um, I pulled them; they were terrible. I have so much respect for romance writers because I cannot do it. Oh, it's, oh it's yeah, very yeah, hard. That, yeah, because when it's when it's done well, it's done well, and when it's not, it's yeah. Yeah, I I did not do it well. It was yeah. it was embarrassing. I, I can relate. I can relate. Um, <laughs> The um, w were you a fan of of 
cozy mysteries before? Did did you? Well, let me ask you this: Did you understand um, what that genre meant? The the cozy so I, mystery. I, I didn't realize that I did. Yeah. Um, but my grandfather was an avid reader of the Rabbi series. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Monday the Rabbi did something, and then Tuesday yeah. the Rabbi did something, and um, I don't remember the author's name. And then my mother read a lot of Mary Higgins Clark, so mm-hmm. suspense mysteries. Right. Um, I grew up. There was V.C. Andrews in the house. Um, of course, I had like the Hardy Boys, and there were like the Sweet Valley High books when I was a teenager. Right. So I didn't realize I knew mysteries mm-hmm. or that I was reading mysteries, but as I looked back and studied, I had been reading them since I was knee high to a grasshopper all my life. Well, I had a very similar experience when I first started writing uh, because I had been a fan of sci-fi and fantasy, like every geek is that, that comes through, you know, I I love those books. Um, And then when I would sit down to write a story, invariably my stories would be set, in a small southern town with with odd kooky characters you know that are right. you know and like people that you would meet at a family reunion or something you know there's always these weird relatives that that always have great stories you know and stuff right. and and I would try to take this thing that I loved and mold it to what I thought needed to happen and then I finally threw my hands up several years ago and said I'm just I'm going to write what what I love to write and and found out that there's a whole subgenre of of people that love to read those kinds of stories, and it was uh, um, an eye opening and exhilarating experience to discover that that there are lots of other people that love the same things that I do. Yeah, I think the paranormal cozy for me is I love the cozy, um, the trying to figure it out, the who done it, yeah. which direction did it come from, um, and f- I grew up as a nerd reading a lot of fantasy mm-hmm. um and to me paranormal cozies were just this perfect melding of cheerful fantasy yeah. <laughs> you know it, it kind of took the best of both of those worlds and really married it together and i yeah. i just adore the genre i know it's kind of a sub 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 <laughs> genre with a very small um readership but i just i can't see myself writing anything else the the small readership is up for debate. There's there's a, a very hungry readership. Well, they they may be small in numbers, but but they're uh, rabid readers. Let me put it that way. Um, for for those that are uh, maybe uninitiated, um, what is a paranormal um, cozy mystery? What how much paranormal is there? How much mystery? Like what what is when you're trying to learn the genre? How do you figure what what is the right amount of this what is the right amount of that well the nice thing is it's kind of all over the map okay um the interesting thing is paranormal cozy readers tend not to be cozy readers sometimes um a lot of us especially when advertising have found that people that read paranormal cozies might read both but dedicated cozy mystery readers don't tend to cross over into paranormal it's a very strange kind of thing where they exist side by side and yet not in some ways yeah um but it can run the gamut from a 
fantastical world in an alternate universe with fairies and you're going through the mists and the paranormal town is magical like Brigadoon and appears every hundred yeah. years um, all the way to it's mostly a cozy mystery and there's a sprinkling of magic or there's a talking ghost or there's a talking cat. Um, my first series was fantastical. It was a magical circus that could teleport all over the country and um, there was magical energy and if somebody was a descendant of the Fae, their magical energy could wake up when they attended the circus. And my next series is just normal people in a Texas town outside of Austin, um, very autobiographical, kind of yeah. facing the influx of the Elon Musks and the, the high dollar <laughs> money of the world. Um, and there's just a crystal plate that allows cats to talk. Um, so it's a, it's a very small amount of paranormal, yeah. but there's enough that, um, you know, the cats know information. And how do you get information out of a cat for the, to solve the case of the, so it really can run this incredible gamut all the way from it's almost just a fantasy book with a mystery yeah. in it to it's a mystery book with a little sprinkling of fantasy. I love it. Um, one of my favorite things to, to talk to writers about is the, the moment of creation at, at one, like your newest book, Owl and Duke, uh, Duke Hearst. Um, at one moment in time, nothing about that book existed. And then he, something triggered the the creative process and you know characters are born and and plots are devised and then it's your job as the writer to dig that story out and polish it up and you know make it into a book what what is that first moment of creation usually like for you is it does it start with a character does it start with a uh, a plot device where does it begin i honestly don't really know i kind of um, I'm a, a pantser, so I don't uh, plot. The, the most information I know about a book that I'm writing is I write the blurb so it can go up for pre-order. The pre-order and the cover um, will inform the story. That's kind of okay. the most shaping that I do. Um, and I just sit down and write. So it's, it's a very much an organic process with the miss and and I shouldn't say that the I have the mystery pretty nailed down. I know who the the red herrings are going to be, who mm -hmm. actually did it, how things were done. Um, but I don't really have a plan to get from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. I just kind of go on the journey and see what happens. Um, one of the interesting things about that is that I very often write myself into a corner where by about chapter 12, um, I'll just sit back and go, oh, crap. I, like, I have no idea how I'm going to get all these people out. The neat thing about that is, though, that readers often tell me that the mystery was unexpected. The resolution was unexpected. And part of that is because I really have no idea. I just because write really myself into a hole. And yeah. then I try and figure out how I'm going to get all these people out of all the situations that I've gotten them into. For me, it works. It can get frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's 
I, I really jump into the story with kind of both feet and just dive in and start flinging characters and emotions and fights and people in every direction. And um, at some point we'll stop and go, gosh, we probably should start to clean this up. And how are we going to do that? Do you ever get to the end of a book and what you have written does not match the blurb that you started with? Yeah, but blurbs can be changed. Um, <laughs> right. Is I used to get very, um, you know, can't change a cover, can't change a blurb, can't, you know, yeah. it, it just doesn't look professional. And I think after 26 books, I'm much more relaxed. Yeah. Um, the only person that remembers what the cover looked like before was me. The only person right. that, you know, maybe somewhere on Goodreads, there's a copy of the original blurb. But yeah, um, I, I think sometimes authors get much more wrapped up in things that readers, do, you know, readers are very much in the moment. They see it, they buy it, they read it, and they put it down until the next book comes out. Do, do you find yourself 26 books in um, with a... Um... A, a loyal readership that are going to buy the next book because it's you, not necessarily because of the blurb. Of course, you'll get the pedestrians who, who wander in and, and buy a random book based on the blurb. But right. do you find that most of those are, are loyal readers who've come back because they now trust you? There are a few readers that will pre-order the book before I've gotten everything up like I, I literally don't know how they like the book is six months I have I have three books up no two books up for the next series for pre-order and the only people that have read that book are my beta readers um, and they get the book free so it's not them but there is something like 25 people I think that have pre-ordered book two of the next series that's not out. Um, so I, from that, I can assume I have a, a, a 25 strong group of very dedicated people um, that will buy an entire series sight unseen. And that's pretty special. I mean, that's that, very special. That I definitely sell more than 25 books per. Um, and, uh, but even that small group having that much trust that they're like, Oh yeah, you know, whatever you come out with in September, we're, we're cool. We'll be here. Um, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. That's, that's very amazing. Um, Leanne, I, I read in one of the, the articles on your website. Um, um, I'm trying to remember. It doesn't matter. Um, you, it talked about that you have a very, um, particular work schedule that your production schedule that you if i remember the you set aside like 40 days for drafting am, am i remembering that right uh i release a book every 63 days okay okay um and i have a spreadsheet i'm clicking through to it i'm sorry um no you're fine that there's six weeks um, okay and a certain number of days per week to create the chapters for that week. But yes, I, my life is run by spreadsheets. I have a very, very rigid um, time schedule. 
especially because everything, most of my income is made by pre-orders. Gotcha. Um, I'm very, very rigid with whatever book um, is coming out. There is a link to the next one. So I don't lose those readers as they get distracted with other people as they should. Right. Um, But I make sure that there's at least the next book up and usually the next two, because like I said, those small but dedicated folks will run on ahead. Um, And because of that, I have to be very, very rigid. Amazon is very, very unforgiving for people that don't make their pre-order date. Yeah. Um, I have not missed one yet. I I ask that because some of the the outlining purists will say that there's no way that you can be a pantser and maintain – um, this sort of work schedule and and continue to come in uh, on deadline over and over again when you're not working from an outline. Um, what what do you say to that? Um, it's a job. <laughs> I it, it really is just that simple. I know that there's a lot of people that yes, it's an artistic job and yeah. it's a creative job and there's an element of that. But for me, first and foremost, this is my job. And my job is to write when I don't feel like writing. Mm-hmm. Um, my job is to, you know, I can always go back and fix words that I put on a page that maybe weren't great because I wasn't feeling it that day. Yeah. Um, but if I've lost a day of writing, I have lost that day. And right. I can never get that day back. So for me, this is a job. It's not something I do when the muse strikes me, it's nice if the muse shows up. If it doesn't, I still have words I have to get on a page. Right. right. So uh, it, it really is just that. It's, it's, you don't get up and decide whether you're going to do your job that day. You get up, you do your job, and, and you get it done. Um, are, are there, um, do you have a, a certain, production uh schedule each day or do you have a a certain word uh count that you're trying to hit do you is it uh i'm going to write a chapter today like what are your metrics that for your i work by chapters so um i also get up at 4 30 in the morning so that may have something to do with it possibly um it's i like that quiet time before everybody else in the house is up um so i am up at 4.30 4.30 to 5, and I'm usually done writing by 12. Um, but I write until a chapter is done. Now, previously, I would write the chapter, and then the next day I would go back and edit it. Mm-hmm. And this current book that I'm working on, I am trying to move to writing um, the chapter in the morning, taking a break, eating lunch, coming back and editing in the afternoon, and then... Um, getting that done because I'd like to get to the point where I'm releasing a book a month. I know it's possible. I see some yeah. people doing it. Oh yeah. But it's been it's been out of my reach um, just because when I tried, I got very burned out very quickly. Yeah. Do you um do you find that uh, instead of where you were writing one day, editing the next, and writing the next day, there there's you know, a, a day off between writing this new experiment that you're trying where you write and then edit in the same day and then write again the next morning. Are you, do you feel like that the, the story stays fresh that way because there's no time off or are you noticing any, 
any creative difference by by doing it that way? Not really, but I think a lot of that is um, thanks to the artificial intelligence co-writing partner. Um, yeah. It's um, there, it, I, to some extent, it can be at times hard to keep the thread, but I've, I'm working it out now. It's hard to answer because I'm really two weeks into this. Um, so for two weeks, I've been able to do two days on, I take a day off, two days on, take a day off. So I've gained some. Um, I certainly haven't cut my production in half. Before I was working six days a week, um, write, edit next day, write, then edit next day, write, then edit next day. Yeah. Um, and now it's write, edit, write, edit, day off write, edit, write, edit, day off. Um, so it's, it's, I think I gained an extra chapter per week um, instead of like taking those six days and making them all writing days. Right. Um, so it's, it's not as, it's not as different as I thought it would be. Um, gotcha. The thing is that the editing is where I put in the jokes and where I put in the description. Right. And I'm relying on AI for a lot of those suggestions. Um, the story, the characters, and, and where everything moves is still wholly written by me. Yeah. Um, but it's almost like writing in shorthand. So I don't have to concentrate as I'm writing saying, you know, he looked at her. I don't have to worry if I said he looked at her 14 times in right. this chapter and how, you know, I don't have to sit there and find another way to say it right then. I can just, he looked at her, he looked at her, he looked at her. And the next day or the afternoon, okay, let's say this five different ways and I'll pick the way. It makes it easier um, to, to get things, to get it varied and to not have to sit and rack my brain. Because for some reason, when I'm thinking about how to say something different, if I'm having a bad day or I'm tired, there is no other way to say this. I am 100% sure this is the sole sentence that can go in a paragraph. Right. Right. Um, and the benefit to the AI is it's not really attached to its idiosyncrasies. It will make up 27 bad sentences and you can find one that's really good. Yeah. Well, um, since since you brought the subject up, um, let, let's talk about AI for a minute. Um, this is um, um, the Chat GPT, uh, the Open AI engine has been around for a while now, and um, a, a product that you use, uh, PseudoWrite, has been using the the version three of that engine, if I'm not mistaken, Ch uh, GPT three, um, and something happened the end of last year and it just sprang into the into the global consciousness and everyone's talking about it all of a sudden and um and the um and you know it, all these conversations started going around about the you know what will ai do to the writing community and and i think on the surface and and you and i talked about this a little bit before we started recording that you know, first impressions are, oh well, well that's not that's not real. That's not a, a real story. It's just, 
you know, random things thrown together and, you know, maybe it gets lucky every now and then. Um, but then, uh, you know, when you look at it, it's, uh, it's actually really good. Some of the things that it comes up with. And, and so then you start wrestling with, um, uh, you know, is this, is this right or not? You know, should, should, should we be counting on machines to do this for us? And is it going to replace writers and, you know, all of the hysteria that gets, you know, wrapped up in it. And, and um, uh, toward the end of the year, I started thinking more and more about it. And uh, I've got several friends who, uh, who co-write together and they talk about the co-writing process as um, that there's, you know, this third person that kind of enters the relationship. You've got this writer and this writer, but when, when they're pitching ideas back and forth, um, kind of a, new things come out that neither one of them could have come up with on their own. And, and I told you a little while ago that I started thinking of the AI tools in that way, that, um, that it has ideas and I put in information to it with ideas I have and new stuff comes out. Um, so I, I started seeing the, the value in, in using tools like this and, 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 you know, people are, are, are worried that that someone's just going to put in a description and it's going to spit out an 80,000 word novel. And it's, it's not like that. Um, when, with the, the tools that you have been using, what are some of the, the biggest misconceptions that, because you've been very vocal about your use of the AI tools and, uh, and that your production and, and your process is better because of them. Uh, but what is, what's kind of the main, um, you know, argument that you hear that, that people just, that they're understanding incorrectly what is actually going on. So I think there's, there's two arguments that I'm seeing out in the author community. Um, the first is it, it's going to take our jobs. It's going to be able to produce an right. 80,000 word. I don't want to say it's never going to be able to do that because I think we've seen just in the last year or two, the progress that open AI has made mm -hmm. is, is exponential. Right. Um, as somebody who used AI when chat GPT was unleashed for free on the world, mm -hmm. I was pretty shocked um, at, at how good it was and how easy it was to kind of dialogue with. So yes, it's probably coming at some point. Way down the line, probably not as far as we'd like. Um, I don't think it's as close as everybody thinks it is, right. especially considering OpenAI really can't remember more than you know X number of tokens or 2,000 words or whatever it is. Um, it, it can chunk out answers, but it still needs a human to give it a soul, to put it together, to, to grasp the overarching concept of whatever it's doing. It still needs a human to give it a soul. I love that. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote you on that. I mean, it really is. You could get this thing to spit out text all day, but it doesn't know what it's saying. And right. it doesn't have a context. It's all predictive based on... Um, obviously, you can learn a lot just by studying what people have said before, and that's how it's gotten where it is. Um, but it just doesn't 
no, it doesn't feel, it doesn't, there is no soul to it. I, you know, I think of it as like right now, I'm sure if you looked at art, um, there's probably so much more digital art than there is paintings on canvas, um, chalk drawings on sidewalks. I think we're undergoing in our creative um, endeavors are undergoing that same disruption that Photoshop caused in the artist community. I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, I do think there's inherent problems in that, just like there were inherent problems with Photoshop and that you could just right click right. and save art on the web and you could steal it really easily and you could, um, you know, mimic somebody's art. So, I mean, I have a plugin called Impression that can make a Da Vinci painting and Photoshop. It's, it, this is nothing that hasn't happened before. It just hasn't happened to us. And so, right. um, but like Photoshop, I think it's just going to evolve what writing means, um, how people interact with these tools. I think that people are going to become um, better at directing and kind of navigating and knitting together all of these tools into better stories. Mm -hmm. um, I think we all have weaknesses and I think some of these tools are really gonna help some of those weaknesses. Like for me, if I could just, I should be a playwright because I just love dialogue. If I could just write a whole book yeah. on dialogue, I would be good. Um, for me, the AI has helped not even just writing the description, but showing me the description that should be there, what it thinks comes next. I'm like, wow, didn't I make that clear two paragraphs ago? I guess not. I really probably should tell the reader that that's green. Um, it helps. And, and I don't think people should be as worried about it spitting out novels right. as they are. And the other argument that I see, which I think is harder to, reconcile is this whole thing is built on stolen IP. Right. These people ran around and rifled through books and the web and they just took it and they they're using it and nobody got paid. And you know, how can you um, mimic Neil Gaiman if you didn't read Neil Gaiman's books? And I bet Neil Gaiman didn't give you permission to read his books and use your, you know, I get right. the argument. I understand. But I'm also from the internet. I was in IT. I worked mm -hmm. for a web hosting company for 20 years. I owned one. The internet gave a lot of people a lot of permission <laughs> for a lot of years Yep. that um, it thought would be used one way. Mm -hmm. And you can't now go, but I didn't intend for you to use it that way. And I think that's kind of where open AI is probably going to land. Gotcha. So I, no, I do want to say though, I, yeah. I do think that there's kind of the, the argument in the artists where artists are getting pretty much their style is ripped off mm -hmm. um, by like mid journey. And I think there's some arguments there that it's going to affect those people's income now. Right. Um, and so I, I think there are going to be some legal things that are going to be worked out. I just don't see um, that in writing it's going to be that big of a deal or the level of a big deal it is for 
the visual artists. So from the, the kind of theoretical, um, you know, conversation about AI to the practical, what, what does it mean for you to use these AI tools in your creative process? Like you, you're a pantser, like you said, do you, um, and, and you, we're going to link in the show notes. Um, you've got a page on your website where you share all sorts of information, all kinds of information about your process and, and, you know, what it looks like. Um, but what does it look like? How, how do you incorporate these tools into your creative process? It honestly changes from month to month. Um, Pseudorite is my primary tool. And okay. the reason it's my primary tool is because Pseudorite, uh, to me, is really heads and tails above anything else out there for fiction writers. It is a company started by people who understood fiction and narrative. It is tuned for fiction and narrative. Um, it doesn't have some of the limitations that even OpenAI's direct stuff has, where you can't mm -hmm. talk about sex or you can't talk about murder, because in fiction, right. those things happen. Yes. Um, so I feel like Pseudorite really respects authors and writers as the adults that they are. And um, does its best to listen to the people that are um, in their forums and in their Slack and really create something that isn't, is going to work with you and, and kind of get out of your way, um, but assist you as much as possible. I do use other stuff, but in writing and writing fiction, Pseudorite is, I, I don't want to yeah. sound like a shill for Pseudorite, but I really. <laughs> that's okay. Um, that's, that's your it, process. That's, it's it's for it. fiction. I, I just yeah. don't think there's anything better. Um, how I use it can change from day to day. Um, I may be perfectly um, happy with my chapter and start and then, get stuck saying something, get stuck on, um, maybe there's something I need a lot of description of, mm -hmm. but it's not that important. It's really just to set the scene. I will pop that, you know, describe this gigantic rich person hall, and it'll give me five sentences that I can then take and edit into the narrative. Um, I use it for a lot of that, a lot of things that I don't perceive as integral to the story, but that I just need to paint a picture with. Um, I have a lot of ticks. My editor says like, if I'd stop using the word as <laughs> <laughs> my books would be so much better. She spends literally a day just kind of marking those out. Um, and I can spot those now. Yeah. As I'm writing or as I'm reading um, that, oh, shoot, I've linked, you know, two separate sentences four times in a row with the as drop all of that in and have it rewrite it for me five different ways until I find something that sounds better. Right. Um, I use it to keep from getting stuck. If I was having a bad day, if I was not able to think through something, um, I, like wording things for me was always like, I, I really would get very like I'm traveling down this road. I've thought of one way to say it. Right. And I can't think of any others. 
like I know there's a dozen ways to say this, but my brain is just not coming up with a single one. What I used to do was I had a database of books and I would just search for, and he looked in parentheses or in, in quotes and find all the sentences that people ever wrote and just flip through them. Like I knew there was other ways to say this. It's a, a great idea, actually. Yeah, Pseudorite does that for me now. And I don't have to, because you'd be surprised. A lot of people, especially for simple ways to say it, Yeah. doing that database, you realize how many people say things the same. Right. Um, and there's not a lot of different ways that people use it, which is, I think, why the AI works so well, because it's predicting what most people are going to say, right? Right. But if you tell it to give you five different ways, it will give you five different ways to say something. Um, and I think that makes my writing richer than it would have been without it. So you are using PseudoWrite in, in, in particular, this, this package, um, as, a, as a collaborator of sorts to um, pitch ideas of, of different ways to 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 word things or to, as a as a second set of eyes almost yes i i personally use it for words um okay i don't get stuck with with stories or plot yeah um i get stuck with how to say something different especially after 26 books yeah my readers have read my ticks and idiosyncrasies over and over again and i want to try and get them out and i want to tell them something in a different way um it's not always easy to come up with that so for me pseudo write is basically a sentence in a paragraph thesaurus um it gives me ways to say things in a in a richer more detailed more descriptive way than i would normally come up with Gotcha. So I think one of the big misconceptions uh, when you say that your writing process includes uh, an AI tool, I think a, a lot of times people assume that it's spitting out uh, a page of text and then you, um, you know, browse through that and make a couple of changes here or there. But it it it's mostly the AI generating ideas for you. And and that's not that's not the way it works at all. So that's it? not the way it works for me. Yeah. But I can't say that's not the way it works because sure. there are absolutely people I know that are um, potentially using it that way. Some um, that are trying to use it that way. that yeah. think their writing would be quicker and faster if they used it that way. The interesting thing about the AI is it really does run the gamut. Um, and the way I use it, I've noticed seems to be a little outside the norm um, that I use it for words versus ideas. Okay. Um, I don't get stuck with ideas. I know where my story is going. I know who my people are visiting. I know what they're saying. Um, I'm just looking to color in and shade and highlight um, and make it better, richer, more descriptive more dynamic yeah but um 
I watched somebody use expand in Pseudowrite and just kind of, you know, she would write one sentence and expand it and then dump it in and then edit it and then go and, and kind of pile it on like a sandwich. Um, and this is somebody who's, who's can absolutely write. Yeah. Um, so it can be used that way. Yeah. I don't know that it's wrong to use it that way because somebody is still editing it and shaping it. And because I do that a lot too, I'll get a structure of a sentence. What it came up with was ridiculous. So I just would take that structure and change it to what I want to change it to. Um, People use it in different ways again, you still have to have a human to, to collate, to integrate, to shape, to edit, to knit together, to keep control of the narrative. It's it. I I know I sound like I'm choking because I'm trying to like, I don't want to sound like I'm judging people that use more words. And I don't think people that use more words than less are wrong. Yeah. Um, especially since there's some really amazing things that it's being used for. There's some people that yeah. English is their second language and they want to mm-hmm. write. And so it's helping them sound more, quote, American. Yeah. Um, or people that are um, not neurotypical that have difficulty interpreting faces and facial expressions in their fiction and pseudorite is helping them there. So it just, I, I get very nervous when we start, like, I don't think there's a litmus test for the morality of the AI based on the volume used. I think yeah. the litmus test is how integrated the author is in crafting and directing that story. Right. Regardless of the volume of actual words used. And and we are definitely not making a a moral uh, judgment on, on whether, um, you know, on, on how you use it, that that's not the, um, you know, those discussions will come down the road, I'm sure. But, um, Oh, they're um, definitely here already. I've definitely seen If you've been on the internet, they are. Yes. (laughs) Um, but I, I'll just tell you a, a, a quick experience I had uh, over the the holiday break that that we just had. I, I have a book that I've been working on um, that's a, a a mystery set in a small town, and I'm pretty much finished with the first draft and and uh, am going through my my editing process right now. Um, but just for giggles, um, over the break I used Chat GPT and and uh, I said. Um, write me, uh, a 40 chapter outline for, so I, I figured if it's roughly 80,000 words, 2000 word chapters, 40 chapters, um, and, and these are the characters and these are, uh, this is who the sleuth is, and this is what his day job is. And he has a, uh, a love interest, you know, and, and gave her name and, uh, and, and give me three potential, um, or, or four potential um uh uh villains but what one is only actually is the the actual um you know perpetrator of the crime uh 
And what it spit out was very intriguing. It was absolutely a workable outline, um, though redundant in places. It's, it's like it it had uh, it it could tell um, some of the the peaks and valleys of storytelling structure, and it repeated some of those through there. So it it was right. not perfect, but it, what it did give me is a couple of ideas that I had not thought of, um, of, of ways that in my editing, I could go through and, and, and throw a couple of red herrings and, and shape the narrative in some interesting ways that I had just not thought right. of. Now, you know, did I use AI to, to come up with that? Well, yes, but like you said, it still took me to interpret that and to decide which pieces to use and, and what, not to use. And then I still had to expound on those ideas. Um, so it's this weird kind of hybrid. It's very difficult to describe how it works. It's one of the reasons yeah. I, I kind of hesitate to do podcasts on yeah. the AI and, and how I use it. Cause I, I don't think sometimes I even know or can really describe It's It's a very personal thing, how somebody writes and how they process things. Um, and it, it, it feels like we're all kind of dancing around or trying to dance around. Like we don't want to say we were influenced by the artificial intelligence, or we want to make sure that there's a limit to what we're willing to use. And I just think that that's artificially (laughs) it's 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 putting an artificial constraint on a new tool that we don't even know yeah where like we're in the infancy of what this can do and we don't know how much it could benefit us well this is one way that i started thinking about it leanne was um if you're in the middle of writing a book and and your mind is focused in one direction and then you're out to dinner or something, and you overhear a conversation from a couple at, at a table nearby. Right. And and you start and and whatever they're talking about starts the what if game playing in your mind. And then all of a sudden your book that you're currently writing takes a new direction because of this new information that I never thought of that. That's amazing. What well, do you credit the couple at the table next to you as co-writers of the book? Like, you know, what what part of that new information then becomes part of your creative process? It's it's weird how we take in external information and and our brains, you know, create stories out of them. Yeah, there's been a lot of I, I've been asked multiple times whether I'm going to put a disclaimer in the book or claim in, in the book how much is um, AI, how much I yeah. wrote. Um, the A, I don't even know. Um, I think I compared two files once on a chapter and there was about 8% of the words were directly from the AI and everything else is mine. Uh, but that was one chapter. It could be more, yeah. it could be less. Uh, second, I, I don't say that Grammarly has influenced my um, writing by making suggestions on how to say different sentences. I don't mention my use of word rake. I don't mention that I run the entire book and manuscript through the Chicago manual style to make sure those things, I've never done any of that before. Right. 
I, to some extent, I'm kind of baffled by the sudden rush and demand that authors explain themselves um, and explain their use of AI to their readers as if this is a necessity. Now, I can understand if something is whole cloth, right. this is AI. There was no human intervention. Yeah, I get why people would want to know. Um, authors disclaim, like I'm open that I use it, but there's no notice in my book that yeah. the cat on the front was a mid-journey created cat or that Sudorite was used. Um, it, it's definitely an interesting time to be an author. And I do yeah. feel for those people that are scared. Um, I certainly don't want to sound uncompassionate. This is, this is a dream job for those of us that do it. hundred um, percent. And, and, any month you could wake up and Amazon has changed a rule and your career is out the door. It's certainly happened before I yes. get the nervousness. Um, but I also think that people are just being a little more paranoid than they need to be without looking into what it really is, what it can really do um, and how it might be able to help them. Yeah. I agree. Um, Leanne, this has been an extremely fast hour. I, I We could continue talking all afternoon, but um, your newest book is Owl and Dew Curse. Uh, and this is, um, is this the 10th book in a series? Tell me, tell I me think, a little bit about the series. I think so. Um, my current series is not that one. Eek. Uh, ten, yes, Alan Ducurse is the 10th book. It's the second Christmas book. So it was the, okay. the Yuletide release. Um, and this is a series with a mid-30s heroine that okay. came home from the paranormal military after there was a coup in a paranormal city. Um, and she is somewhat conservative, pretty tough. Um, and she came home to her mother and three sisters who are kind of hippies and follower of Greek gods. And um, it was about her homecoming and how she fit back in with um, her, her small town in Florida. And her mother was not happy she was in the military and, you know, how they got back together. And she got to know her younger sisters and uh, many hijinks ensued and many bodies hit the floor so they could figure out murders and um it's it's a fun little kind of fantasy crossover series uh, initially i started the series during the pandemic and so it's one of the few um books that i i started i didn't want anybody to die so it almost had a minority report aspect to it where right she would get notification that somebody's life needed to be saved and she would have to figure out the mystery in order to stop the murder from occurring versus um that's awesome that, people that's croaking. an awesome twist on the genre i like that it was I, some people were not thrilled with it they they wanted <laughs> death and i went back <laughs> a year later when i was ready to start killing people again um <laughs> but but yeah during the pandemic i was just there's enough we're we're gonna save yeah, some people yeah, <laughs> yeah let's enough's enough i love it well leanne we're gonna link in the show notes this episode um 
to your Amazon page where they can find all of your releases there and your website. Um, tell folks, is your website the best place to find you uh, for, for all the stuff that you're up to? Yep, it has a, a little monthly news page um, that'll just kind of tell what's coming out, what's in audiobooks or in production, what where everything is and, and what's coming and going. Awesome. And that's leanneleads.com? Yes. Okay. And we'll link that up there as well. Uh, Leanne, this has been so much fun chatting. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, to come on and share with us. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. That's our episode for today. There's so much more to come as we talk with authors about the craft of writing, but also the business of publishing. Be sure to subscribe to the StoryCraft Cafe podcast in your favorite podcast app to never miss an episode. The StoryCraft Cafe is made possible by Dabble. Writing a book is challenging. Your writing tool shouldn't be. Dabble is an easy-to-use online writing tool packed with helpful features that allow beginning novelists and published authors to create amazing stories. Visit us at dabblewriter.com and start your free trial. Thanks for listening.